start using cutting-edge warp speed 5G technology with your cell phone. Let me tell you about my friends at MobileMobile.io. They have an ultra-fast 4G LTE and 5G network that covers 99% of Americans. So they've got you covered everywhere. Think about it for a moment. You have the opportunity to take a test drive for 10 days with unlimited talk, text, and premium data. What is premium data? Premium data is an allotment of a cellular data that you receive from a higher priority on the network. You won't get throttled like you will with some of those, well, non-brand service providers. To find out more information, all you have to do is go to mobilemobile.io. That's mobilemobile.io to start your 10-day free trial. Welcome to Safety FM, where we talk about safety that's truly inspired by you. Hello and welcome to Safety FM. I am Jay Allen. We're coming to you live from the Westin Fort Lauderdale Beach Resort in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. We are coming to you from the Federal Transit Authority Drug and Alcohol Program National Conference. Today, we're going to sit in on question and answers with the experts. The panel consists of the following. Mark Snyder, Chief of Inquiries and Audits from the U.S. DOT Office of Drug and Alcohol Policy and Compliance. Joseph Lagrain, FTA Drug and Alcohol Auditor for Cahill Swift. Juan Jose Moya, Drug and Alcohol Program Manager, U.S. Department of Transportation. And Ian Rosario, Federal Transit Administration Drug and Alcohol Program Manager. This is your opportunity to ask questions of the experts. Who's going to start us off? All right, thank you for today for the session. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, here we go. Literally five minutes before the session started, I got a text. What's the position on making people, did they take off heavy coats and, and so forth? What about wristbands and headbands? Anything that the collector believes they might be hiding something, the answer to that question is yes. But if it's a normal collection, they don't have any reason to believe. For example, for example, a turban, right? A person comes with a turban, it's under religious rights. You don't take it off, but you see like this hanging out of it, you might want to take it off. So the question, is, the answer always is, is the eye of the beholder who is the collector, that they believe that the owner is trying to subvert the test and bring something in there. And then well, at that point, they need to document it on the chain custody form. <laughs> I would add to that that in my experience in the field, collectors often expect that the regulation and DOT tell them every little tiny detail that could happen and how to respond to it. But as Mark said, you have to use your discretion and your professional experience as a collector to tell when something's up and when something's fishy and then move forward accordingly. And I further on that question, and I think it usually comes up in this session, I'll just beat everyone to the punch. The definition between a direct observation and a refusal to test at the collection site. So someone comes in and brings something with them, and the collector identifies it, correct? The regulation says if you bring some type of device or prosthetic in, that's a refusal to test. But what if you come in and, for example, not too long ago, a guy came in with 
uh, small vial urine instead of his sons he was taken to the hospital after he left the collection center. So what's the answer to that question? Well, the answer to the question is, once again, is the eyes of the beholder of the collector. We're not expecting to know everything to beat the test, but the bottom line is if they find something that they believe is to, like an adulterant or a substitution uh, material, they have two options. Number one is go straight to a direct observation, or number two, call refusal. But either way, they're going to document it, but they're not going to collect it normally. I mean, they're going to, something's going to happen where you're going in, the same gender's going to the bathroom with them, or they're going to write it up and call the DER and say, this is refusal to test. And that's what we expect of the collectors. We don't want them to try to make a final determination because they don't know every adulterant out there because there's so many of them out there. So all I'm saying, when it comes up to it, we ask the collector to make an informed decision and move on. And no one, George, Ion, no one's going to question them at that point as long as it's a DO or a refusal. Well, I'm going to speak to that because uh, we get many, a lot of those requests. So they actually, uh, you got a situation like that, uh, you sent a, a downgrade request that what we call to change the test. And this is only for positive, verified positive test. Because the problem is when positive is positive, right? Uh, so that's, we review, we do some research, we verify, and uh, you know, we provide uh, an answer to that. Yes, you know, we approve it or disapprove it based on the facts. Yeah, and it's the same process for me over the uh, TA side, but I ask for you to send me something. I ask for an email with all the information. I need a copy of the custody control form, mm -hmm. a memo stating why you're asking for this, give me any justification that supports why you're asking me for the DOT to non-DOT, and then I review it, make sure everything's right, or if I may have some further questions, I'll email back, and then I'm As a follow-up to that, how do you, um, what do you do then with that employee? Because at that point, once it's downgraded, he does not have a DOT violation. That is up to your agency policy, so it, he's already non-DOT, so there is no sanctions or consequences from the DOT side because he's not <coughs> DOT. That should be something that you have spelled out in your company policy. And if you do not, of course, we highly recommend that you do. And we actually uh, request uh, any uh, corrective action to prevent this from happening in the future because one of the things we get many companies, they, they're repeated offenders, so that's a problem of communication. So make sure your driver knows where he's getting tested for and make sure the collector knows. But yeah, we request to have that because it's time consuming. I'm glad you said that because one of the things I put in the, base, the bottom of the letter is that I'm going to ask you to, if it was a supervisor error, to do some refresher training with your supervisors. If it was a clerical error where you guys shouldn't have never put him in your DOT random testing pool, I'm going to ask you to look and make sure you are making sure your random next random drawers are accurate and up to date. So there are a couple of clearinghouse, if you will, or cleaning house issues, not cleaning house issues that you guys need to do once that is determined. Could I uh, ask a follow-up to the lady who asked that question? Was this a CDL driver, or what type of function were they, was this person performing? Well, I guess I was more saying along the lines where a test, this person is regulated, okay. um, so they are regulated under one of the modes, say, um, and they, they, let's say they're a pipeline, okay, but they have a CDL as well, and they test positive on a post-accident that 
some of the, the collector, same thing. This guy has a CDL. I'm, I'm checking off FMCSA because I'm the collector and I see he has a CDL as his, his identification. But um, it didn't meet the requirements of FMCSA. He was working on the pipeline. It did not make the, meet the requirements of a pipeline um, either. So now he has a DOT test. He is a regulated employee, but neither one of those, it, it should, didn't fall under either mode that he's regulated under. So then you, then you have actual knowledge um, that someone's tested positive, and I guess that, that's kind of where I was going with that. Well, the, the reason why I brought that up is that even if, even if one or Ion were downgraded, if he has a CDL with a medical card, he would still be medically unqualified because he has, because it, it says any positive drug test. It's not a regulated drug test, so you'd still have that person have to go back to the medical examiner to be reevaluated, and then whatever the, the medical examiner does, then that's the way, the only way that person gets back into the into sick assessment functions. Yeah. All right, I have uh, two questions, one based on that as well. Um, if I have a negative that needs to be downgraded, do I need to contact the DOT to let them know? No. Okay, um, and then, I have, we have, uh, I'm with Lorraine Maintenance Away, we have just a couple of uh, people that fall into the FDA pool. Uh, most of ours are in Maintenance Away under FRA. If we have an employee at some point that needs to uh, do some FTA work who were previously provided the um, pre-employment grandfathering from FRA, do they need to do an FTA pre-employment before they do the FTA work? Yeah, I mean, the, within the employer, if you have one valid negative reemployment test, they can move around within mode of work. That's fine. Um, the one, is Jerry? Jerry's right so, behind you. I, I don't know about how the grandfathering part works. Jerry's literally right behind you. Stand up, Jerry. Jerry, go ahead, stand up. Yeah, the grandfathering would only be on the FRA side, so uh, they were going to do FTA work. They would have to get. Uh, yeah, six fifty-five would say uh, yeah. you need a valid grandfathering test. Yeah. Um, but uh, the the grandfathering on our side is basically for um, <clears throat> it's just the way the covered service in the eighties were grandfathered. They didn't all have to line up and get pre-employment when we started the rule. Um, we're giving that same benefit to the MOW. So it wasn't you know, June 12th last year, we didn't have 30, 40,000 people get a pre employment test. Sorry to wake you up, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so back to the scenario where it was a DOT that you're going to downgrade to a non DOT. How do you handle the statistical? Report when you get audited and they, you know, they look at it and they said they see this and maybe it was a post accident. They're going to want to see the paperwork. Is that sufficient to show that you allowed it to be downgraded, and, or is it going to cost something to the employer? Well, actually, when our office does, we provide a letter approving or disapproving. I, you know, you should keep that in your records. And if it's not graded, then you don't. You shouldn't report it, right? Your statistical data, that's a DOT test. So. But but it might already be on it. 
it might already be on the statistical reports you get well, twice a year from the lab, you know, depending on what time of the month, the yeah, six well, months it fell under. Yeah, so. And, and that would not be like an unauthorized test because you did change it for us? Well, we just provide that information, so downgrade the test. When it's downgraded and we don't downgrade it, you know, you get a, a, a response not to downgrade. So uh, we just provide that, so is the employer incurring that it's a violation? So if it's already reported and there's no way for you guys to change it back, so it's, a, it's, it's up to the, the employer responsibility to go back and make sure everything is accurate. Are you talking about the MIS report? Yes. Okay, so you wouldn't report it. You, you don't necessarily use the statistical summary reports to complete your MIS report. You can, you use the numbers of the actual DOT tests for the calendar year. The statistical summary report is actually not a good thing to use to fill out your MIS. Okay, but if they ask for it, they want to see it Who's where they? the auditor is. <laughs> to see the statistical report from the laboratory, it's going to okay. show it. And that may just be for FYI, but as Juan says, I know we, he said he issues guidance in the memo that he requires, um, gives back. And so do I to keep it in your file. What our audit team will be looking at is what's in that file. If there's a memo in there from either myself or one, then we know that that test is a non-DOT test. And as Mike said, that's not going to count on your MIS either way. So let's not get hung up on the statistical report information. <laughs> More so, what was actually what actually happened during that calendar year, or that testing period? Yes. This is actually for one. Um, considering the um, the drama that's going on with the National Registry website right now, is that going to have any impact at all on the clearinghouse and the work that's being done on that system? It seems like you got computer stuff going on. Well, uh, let me tell you, these two different systems uh, is managed for two different uh, offices within FMCSA. So, uh, you know, I know the, the National Registry has several issues, you know, I, I don't know the specifics because I don't work in that office, but, you know, we're moving, we have the same target date, and we're expecting, you know, work, uh, the system be operational. So. It is not affecting, it will not affect what's happening with the National Register, it's not affecting that, uh, or clearance. I just put it that way. Good. Okay, so for like collector errors that are made on the ECCF or the CCF, I know there's some parts that us, the employer, can change by initialing and changing it, like a social or a, their date of birth and their name, what, so we can change that on our own on the ECCF and the CCF, what type of errors can't we change? Well, you couldn't change anything that happened at the collection site, for example, like the temperature, check, checking the temperature, you were split, um, there, and then anything else that might have happened, you, you know, if a person said that they did something to me, you can't write in comments, you know, that's, that's the collector's thing, but you, know, you certainly can change things that were wrong that you know demographic-wise. Okay, like so you can change your Sure. Yep, you, you, you can change all that. Okay, yeah. so we don't need a memorandum of record no, for the Right, because on the ECCF, be a, it's unfortunate if it's wrong, because someone has edited that data and they're wrong, you know what I'm saying? I know. And that's happened. So how do we correct that? 
Well, I would go back to the collection site to make sure that, because you know, I think a lot of times when you, you can send ahead that this person's coming in, so it's already pre-populated. So it's wrong, we want to make sure that they say, hey, this is wrong. Once you know it, send it back to the collection site, say, you know, instead of 10 63 it's 10 63 or the social or the employee ID number. So whatever's wrong, let them know so they can put it in there and pre-populate it so the next time the person comes in, it's true and accurate. Also remember, that, you know, none of those things, anything we're talking about here would not invalidate the test. So just if, if FTA came in, they would just go to the collection site and say, well, you know, what the hell are you doing? You know, you're right. But I'd have a real problem with the ECCF, you know, if it's, if it's wrong in there. You know, it's only because someone at the collection site had to do it wrong, because I'm sure whoever from you guys are sending the proper information, because it's a driver's license they're usually looking at. Well, I mean, we order the test, sometimes it's off-site, mm -hmm. and um, depending on what part of the different departments give us, like a social, okay. and if they have it wrong, then we Okay, so what you're saying is that potentially you're getting it from human resources, and they have the wrong information. Okay, that makes sense. But make sure that if you're using an ECCF, when it's wrong, to let the question say no, it's wrong. And that way, whatever they get next time, they're going to have to call you back and say, we got two different numbers, which one do you want us to use? And I, I just want to add to, to that, uh, when the clearing house is in, fully implemented, we're going to require CDL stimulations, right? But uh, you guys need to, you know, now with that, those sprints that you have in, you know, with uh, wrong information going on through the CCF, you need to revise your policies and procedures to make sure when that time gets done, you can do your best and provide accurate information. That's hey. just a recommendation. Mark, I have a question for you. Um, about a month ago, we had a uh, fatal error that was caused by the collector where the collector should have been gone through error correction training and I went back to the MRO to say, are you going to contact a collector or do you want me to, to make sure that that gets done? He said, well, they don't need to go through error correction training. What so what do I do when I get that kind of crap? Well, I would go right to the collection site. What was the error? Uh, don't remember. Okay, well, maybe it's, it, but it can't, it was a fatal flaw. It caused it yes, fatal. it was. Yeah, so I would just go back to the collection site, talk to the collection site manager, okay. go into a four point, um, was it 199, the fatal falls, cite that, and then cite the regulations on the collection site of how air correction training has to happen. Now remember, under uh, certain section 40.203 to like 209, it talks about what causes the test to be canceled or not be canceled, not corrected. Air correction training, a collector not being qualified does not cancel a test. It's a, it's a regulation, uh, violation, but the test is so. Always remember, there's seven errors of fatal flaws under 40.199 that always cancel the test. Everything else can be corrected. So if it doesn't go to 40.199, somehow it's going to be corrected.
Well, as you know, you know, our regulations under Part 40 and all the metal regulations, anything below 0 0.02 is a negative. So whatever you did would be a non-DOT sanction. And if our regulations thought, well, it seemed like a negative loop. If you want to handle a negative loop, we would say you cannot reference the DOT regulation whatsoever. So if you go outside of it, your policy is going to have to be clear that anything below 0 0.02 is whatever name your company is. That's our decision to go ahead with that, with that sanction. Just don't reference us. I will not. <laughs> don't, don't I'm wondering that. about, in your experience, about the equipment and the dependability, someone made a comment about the dependability of the equipment. Uh, it, once again, I think it's each machine, EBT is different. You know, don't, we're not talking about the, uh, the slot devices and stuff either. But the EBTs are manufactured different, and at the level they detect, because for example, you know, if police officers, they look at, I mean, your regulation is one, right? Any measurable amount of alcohol? Yes, below uh, uh, 0.04, uh, you, uh, you should place a driver out there. No, no, I'm talking about 392, if you're pulling the side of the road. Yes. Any measurable yeah. amount of alcohol? Yes, yes, yes exactly. exactly. So you would have to say whatever the machine is, and, and, uh, and if you ever have a question, I would call a manufacturer to say, what's your, reliable, what's your reliability? What's your QAP say? What's reliable of anything point zero two? Because a lot of times they'll tell you that it's residual that's in there. I mean, the, but if there's so many different machines that I would not even. I mean, you go to the toxinator where they have like 15 different ones on the CPL, the performing products list. So I would not. I would just go with whatever you're buying. Call the manufacturer and say, here's what I plan on doing. Can you help me in court to ask that question? Now you're going to get this. Uh, uh, I don't think we want to do that. Just be careful that below that point zero two. Yeah, I think your council on the loop as well. You know, and I always highlight the importance. Uh, I know that we don't do a lot of uh, alcohol testing because we require ten point <coughs> percent. But it's very important. Time is critical, and making sure whoever is doing your alcohol uh, testing, you know, they have equipment calibrated, they have up to date because. In many occasions, you send a driver and, and the, the equipment doesn't work and time is sensitive. So sending somebody else somewhere else, we change from a 0 0.4 and above to below that. So and that's a big difference because the consequences are different. Are different. So make sure you revise that with your collectors. All right, we have a question from the online. I'll get you. If a transit authority receiving 5307 monies wants to be a mobility management call center for seniors, the drivers will be volunteer drivers, driving non-canned vehicles. Does anyone know what a non-canned vehicle is? Not sure. I think it's non-CDL, but it autocorrects. Oh, okay. <laughs> no spell check, I guess. <laughs> We'd be receiving 53 monies for this. Would these volunteers be required to be in our drug and alcohol program? So we're talking about volunteers, 53, 10 monies, um, non-can uh, drivers. It was supposed to have right? Pardon? Well, it says the transit company is receiving 5307 monies, but they are going to be receiving uh, additional 5310 monies. So they are already providing a service with the 5307. They're providing a new service based on the rece receipt of 5310 monies. 
So in other words, now they're going to be providing the elderly and handicapped under 5310, and they're going to be providing their basic service that they've had under 5307. So are these 5310 volunteers now required to have a, to be part of the drug and alcohol program? So this is a, a delightful way to set up this question. Um, some visual aids would be really helpful for this one. So generally speaking, 5310 services are not covered under 655. However, you do get, when you have that as a supplemental element of a program that receives 5307 or 5309 money, then there could be coverage issues because of fungibility. So if you are essentially providing, using that 5310 money to increase service that you would otherwise provide under 5307 services to the community, that would be covered. Now that said, if you're using volunteers and they are not receiving remuneration, i.e. reimbursement, in excess of actual expenses, so mileage or whatever, um, if they're not receiving that remuneration and if they don't have to have a CDL to operate the vehicles that you're using, um, and I believe you said they were non-CAN or non-CDL, no, then those people would not be covered. They wouldn't even be covered in the straight 5307 operation. So there's a couple elements at play here, but it sounds like it's FTA post-accident um, ancillary vehicles that are rented. <coughs> FTA post-accident ancillary vehicles that are rented. <laughs> the answer to your question was it should be non-DOT. We discussed it as much. Thank you. This is a drink session. We usually talk about rented and some vehicles. That's my <laughs> Has anyone gotten any uh, feedback or any questions about what you're going to do with employees who have been on opioids and now are being asked to change their medication and are going through withdrawal? Great question. Um, the first thing, the MROs we've talked to, when the treating physician had no clue that the person was performing safety sensitive function, has agreed to go ahead and change the medications to whatever it is, but it's not going to be one of the synthetics. They had warned them, remember, you know, especially like the one I heard is that the one guy's been taking Percocet for three years. So the MRO called the treating physician and said, well, I never know the person was up. I'm not going to tell you what they did for a living. It was sort of scary. Um, so I did not know that. He said, I will, I will take them off immediately. And the MRO said, remember, you, there's also some other issues going to involve with potential withdrawal. Have you, have you talked to him about it? He said, the treating physician says, yes, I have. And the person says, I don't have insurance and I don't have any sick leave. So I'm going to have to gut this out on my own. The same thing problem we have in the substance abuse professional arena. Do we have people in rural areas to find a staff to start with? And do we even find people to have treating things? Do we have people who have insurance? All these things have to come into consideration. So we do know that the MROs, some MROs, if there's nothing in writing to say this that said, you know, if you're going to get them off this stuff, either you want one to talk them through what could be happening to them. So we can't fund anything because it'd be an unfunded mandate. But it's certainly we believe when two professionals are talking about this issue, they would be sort of on the same page. Like, you know, we got to slow play this thing. And we hope to talk to the employer saying, 
this person might be missing some work because there's a medical issue we're dealing with. Not specifically violating any HIPAA to say, we've got some medical issues we're dealing with, so he might be missing some work, or she might be missing some work. I, besides that, there's not much we as the federal government can do. I mean, I know that they, that they look at their veterans, they can go to the VA and get all the help they need at the VA hospitals. But besides that, it's, there's no other difference right now when a person has, has an issue. Yeah, and I wanted to, Mark and I were discussing that. I, was t I had told him you were going to be in the room, and that was actually a really good question. And we had talked about, you know, talking about the VA centers, you know, with the other branches of the federal government bringing funding and streamlining programs, maybe, it helped, but we don't know what those outreach sources, what resources will be. So just, you know, if you guys, as we move through this issue, and please keep abreast of what's happening in terms of the opioid guidance that's that's being the funding that's being pushed out to the local resources. Um, what kind of services that you can start directing your employees to who have these uh, these issues? That's all I want to add to it. I just want to add something because I, I've been getting phone calls from uh, MROs, you know, having issues uh, getting uh, information from the pharmacies. Uh, contacting uh, uh, personal physicians. I think uh, we need to make aware of those drivers under those medications. You know, they need to talk to the physicians and tell them what they do for a living. They're subject to UFD testing. Talk to their pharmacy they can, you know, because you have a five-day window. You know, it's better to fix the problem before than after, you know, and you have five days and then you might be out of work for a while. So if it's a little bit uh, work ahead before you get a test or, or it's a safety concern, or, you know, kind of go back to your physician and say, you know, what's going on, and, and that will help a uh, lot. Uh, you should also, when you, when you get back home next week, <coughs> give your MRO a phone call and ask them how they're going to deal with some of, these, uh, some of these issues as they come up. I talked to an MRO two or three weeks ago who was working with a physician to actively titrate someone off of their prescription because of the withdrawal concerns. And the physician was perfectly happy to switch them to something, but you can't do that instantly. So the MRO is taking a proactive role in making sure that this person had a safe transition to a more acceptable uh, drug. And to the extent that you as a, as a regulated employer can work with your MRO just to make sure that he is aware, she is aware um, that these things will come up and make the program a lot better. So just to piggyback on this, um, I'm very fortunate in Rochester, New York. We self-administer all of our own drug and alcohol testing in-house. Um, we also do all of our driver physicals for 19A in-house. Um, we contract out our medical providers who service both MROs as well as examining um, 19A examiners. So we've had a recent situation, uh, a guy was being prescribed 240 Vicodin a month by his doctor for two years. And um, our provider ran the report to see it and showed a positive on a drug test. And um, under 19A, which is his medical certification in New York State, she found him unfit to drive, A, taking that amount and quantity of um, an opiate, that there was definitely a dependence issue and that he needed to be weaned off it when being withdrawal and she found him unfit for duty while he was going through the withdrawal process. So we were really proactive in um, getting him into an uh, employee sponsored program through our uh, substance abuse professional or EAP program 
not a DOT mandated. Um, and then his doctor completed New York State disability paperwork and we were able to pay him disability benefits while he went through that withdrawal process. I mean, that's, that's what, the way it's supposed to work. But unfortunately, that's either like the 5% of the employers are able to provide that kind of services. So the biggest concern is, and, I, and I'm just going to talk to Juan, it, I mean, both of these, probably of the 5 million truck drivers out there, probably 4.5 million of them don't have health insurance and have no paper leave whatsoever. They're not driving, they're not getting paid, and no one's paying for their insurance. So ultimately, what's this individual going to do? They're going to try to gut through it themselves while they're going to withdraw and keep on driving. And ultimately, no one can stop them because here's the problem. Under the medical standards of other carriers, they did not test positive. It's a negative test, okay? So potentially you could say that there's a change in the person's behavior, but you don't know that yet until it starts withdrawal. And I'm not only sure that the medical examiner would be able to do it at that point. So it becomes a really slippery slope if you don't have all these factions in there. And it's no different right now, like I said, with substance abuse professionals. They're going to find a substance abuse professional that gives them education and gets them back on the road as soon as possible. They are the facts that we're dealing with, and this all epidemic is not changing. All we're saying is that we're hoping that the MRO and the treating physician have a hard part to say, what's our options? Where are you located? Do you have free services that you can go to and get some help? You know, there's, I mean, it depends where you live and what you got. Um, so my question is, I know that you do audits at some of the testing sites, so probably all of them at some time or another. But where I come from, the testing site comes to the property, you know, and do, and do their testing on, on the authority on the property. So how do you conduct, uh, for lack of a better term, surprise audits with those companies? So for for a regular audit, not a surprise audit, we do have those mobile collectors come to the transit agency's facility or wherever they do it and, and show us how they do that collection. They do get a heads up about that. So for the undercover surprise audits that, that IM runs throughout TA, um, a lot of times those are missed because where do you go? You know, IM's inspectors are in the field. And so where would you go for a mobile collection? To the person's house? However, Within transit, they will often, before they do their undercover trips, they will work with the transit employer, the grantee in the area, to present themselves as a transit employee and then do a surprise inspection. Well, I saw your face. You gotta remember, when they go undercover, they have all sorts of different employer IDs, they have all sorts of different IDs. I mean, this is, it's, Pretty complicated how they do this. They can get elements in anywhere. I mean, I've had them go to places where I never <coughs> been in, and no one knew that they were there, came in and came out. So if the employer thinks they have a problem, the employer's going to work with them. The employer very easy could give one of the people an employer ID, right? It's not hard to find an employer ID. You say, I'm site, I'm not quite sure I'm not smart enough how to fix it. But when you guys are on the site for an audit, I want, I want you to do a, you know, do a whole audit on that, thinking it's one of my employees. And so they come on and you know, just a regular Joe pre-employment test, and you're going to find all sorts of violations that time. So there's a way to do it, especially if the board wants help. All right, I have a question here. 
Hi, good afternoon. If an employee completes the staff process and goes back to work and fails their return to duty test, what happens? Starts all over again. That whatever happened. So here's the thing. That's, that's a great question. So whatever, let's say that, that he was supposed to go through 12 follow-up tests in the next two years. That whole plan, everything gets broken. I mean, it's filed. Starts the step process over, whatever SAP says, and then new follow plan. Only one follow up plan. You're not doubling up on here. So he, you know, you got one, you got two positive tests, but still one follow up plan. Um, I was surprised the other day. I asked some of my team members when they're scheduling DOT tests, do people know that the test has changed? And some of my team said, no, there are a lot of people that asked about it, but they're not familiar that the test has changed. So my question is, from an impact standpoint, do you have any comments on what you've seen since January that has become the biggest issue? I mean, I, I know it's a short period of time, but do you see more refusals? Do you see more positive issues? I mean, have you seen something significant as a challenge since the test has changed? Well, the, say the test has changed is more accurate to say they added more drugs to be tested for. The testing itself, nothing's changed, the collection's the same. What I will say is, it's very interesting, and, and it has not so much to do with the synthetic opiates, it's more to do with just more testing, at a, it's more sensitivity to testing. The laboratories are finding more imbalance. More valves based upon what? More valves based upon all the synthetic urine that's out there that people are trying to adulterate the test. And what happened was one manufacturer of the, of the adulter of the synthetic urine was worried about the synthetic opiates, so they changed the, the, the composition just a tad, so it made it a little more yellow. The synthetic uh, urine basically is in a it's in a little little bag. You put it in here, you shake it up, and then hopefully you keep it warm enough that it'll pass the temperature but it will hopefully mask the test. And what they did was, and don't get caught up in the laboratory words, but the amino assays, the reagent in the synthetic, the synthetic urine was causing it to go wacky, for a better word. So at that point, then the laboratory knows there's something wrong. And so they're gonna send an invalid. Now the scariest part about this is, is that when you have an invalid test, by the regulations, if you don't have any reason why, the MRO is going to tell your employer to send you back for direct observation as soon as possible. Of these thousands, thousands of vows that came back, the result of the uh, direct observation of the vow, 20% of them were positive. Wow. The other problem is they also know uh, HHS, Health and Human Services, have their own laboratory in Raleigh of Durham. They're testing these synthetic opiates all the time. There's two of them that win every time. It'll go straight through and it'll be a negative. Now they do have some biomarkers that they know of that they're looking at to see that you know, human, human urine has so many um, creatinine, specific gravity, uric acid, steroids, there's so many things that human urine has to have in its composition. And they're looking at, some of these are coming up with biomarkers and they don't know what at the lowest level but they say if you don't get below this, it becomes adulteration. So I think to your question is the synthetic opiates, I mean the synthetic urine is out there. It's always been out there. And what's interesting is, is that all most of the synthetic uh, urine, it will say on there, I think a lot of them are like $15, they say if you don't pass, we'll give you five times your money back. So here's what happens. So and we know this, we, we made some calls. So I called the, man, the manufacturer and said I flunked. 
what were you, what, what, what did you think you were best, best positive for? Let's say I say marijuana. Did you ask for your split? So no, ask for your split. So what they're finding out is, when you call back and say, my, my split still, still failed, they know they're getting caught. So they basically paid $75 for a high intelligence. So if it passed, they're like, all right. Because what will happen is sometimes, if the, if it, the way the synthetic urine works, if it, if it tests too fast, it has not had enough time to de decompensate what, what it's trying to do with the drugs in your system. And what will happen then, after it sits for a while under the split, it will, it will be active and it will work. So these are all the things that we're finding out working. So I know for a fact Health and Human <coughs> Services is working on it. It's a big, big issue because we've never seen this many in battles in this short of time. And I want to add on to that first part where you were saying that a lot of employees don't know that the that there's something different that they're going to be tested for additionals. So that tells me that some properties are not doing their education or not informing their their employees of what they're being tested for now. So something has changed, and as Patrice said, you want to communicate that to your <coughs> transit drive, your your drivers. So now that they're informed of what being required of them. Because some of them are watching, and everyone's watching the news. Everyone knows opioids is the issue. But they don't understand now that they're now, some of them may not understand, you're now subject to that now. So just say if that's happening, there needs some education pieces that need to be pushed out. Um, going back to the supervisors, we have supervisors that will definitely drive two, three times a month, you know, at, at least. Um, and if they get pulled for a random alcohol, the general thought process, and I want to know if this is correct, is that because this happens regularly, they're perpetually in a state of just before performing a safety sensitive function because they could get called out at any time during the day if somebody breaks down. So would we? do the alcohol test. You're covered by the motor therapy, right? Yes. Okay, I'll look. Well, what it is, I know I'm not supposed to and some people have, but for me, it is that you, you say two, three times, right? But it's a reasonable. Some, some are, some are, some are everyday Okay. It, it varies. So when they want to work at their perspective to take the will of the vehicle? Well, they don't know if they need to. But it's an expectation. Yeah, they, they have to be ready. Yes. Okay. Ready, ready to go at any time. All so right. perpetually just there before. There you go. I have a quick question. Let's say I had a transit system and I had the exact same situation. <laughs> <laughs> so we say no to that, actually. In transit, we say if your supervisor doesn't have, you know, if they're not scheduled to perform a safety-sensitive function, they have no knowledge of performing a safety-sensitive function, they're just sitting there at their computer, then for us, they're not performing a safety-sensitive function. However, you can tell them, you can say to your supervisor, go move that vehicle, Go move that revenue service vehicle from that side of the yard to the other side of the yard. And when he gets finished his driving and gets out of the car, say, here's your random alcohol test. It's devious, but it works. Yeah. Uh, my question is, back on the list, we have a random list with CDL drivers uh, that are on there just because they have a CDL. They're not expected to drive.
just because they have a CDL license, our employer wants to be able to use them in case they something happens and they need a CDL driver. But they're not expected to ever. They don't come with the expectation of having to drive. It's okay to have them on the list. Okay, you're saying someone, someone that holds a CDL works for the employer, right? But it doesn't drive, right? Correct. Not they they don't have to be subject. So the thing is, at the time that person drives a commercial motor vehicle that requires a CDL, it's subject. If that person is not, even if they hold a CDL, they're not subject. Are, are we wrong for having them on the list? Like, I'm on the list. Well, it's like he mentioned, you're, you're going to have somebody that drives once a year and have it on the full, you know, you're diluting full. You have somebody that goes, you know, several times a week, maybe one time a week, you know, well, that's more agreeable. But I guess the whole point of it is you keep them in the pool in case that one time a year happens, you don't have to wait for the pre-employment test, right? Right. Right, I mean that 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 is that is an issue. Because so a lot of people do that yeah. because you don't know when this issue is going to come up. You know, we have five people calling sick one day. That person is going down the road, but if they don't have if they're not in the random testing pool, you can't send them because you need to put them to the pre-employment test in more than thirty days of that. So, I mean, it's one program. I just think it's it's tough. It's tough. I didn't, I've always said if the person can be expected to drive at any time, just keep them in the pool. I haven't driven a CDL vehicle in 10 years, but I'm still on the list. I well, you know why you still, still have a CDL? Because nobody in their right mind wants to go back to the frickin' DMV to get the license. <laughs> 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 one thing I'll say about this country, all 50 states, the DMVs are dysfunctional. <laughs> I have a question. Yeah. Uh, so we had a question earlier today. Someone goes for an, an employee goes for an alcohol test. The result is um, 0.35, 0.035, 0.035, I'm sorry. <laughs> the employer does not want to send them out for eight hours. They're going to continue to test them until they go under 0.02, okay? They do the test, it's now 0.04. <laughs> is that a DOT positive at this point in time? In other words, the, the alcohol level is climbing, not going down. So, was the, so they did the initial test. They did the initial. They did the the, 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 um, the screening. They did the confirmation, and now the employer says in the option of either sitting out for eight hours or testing them until they come below 0.02. The, the, the DOT testing is over. After that, whatever the confirmation test okay. is, that's the final answer. It, it, is it done on a DOT form? Yeah. Oh, it is, but it's not considered a. The, the, the result of 0.04 is not considered the DOT test. No. no. Okay. Whatever the public policy is. Let me, let, me, let me just give you real quick a story that I served to us. There's a real story. The, uh, there, was a, there was a person that drives a really big thing that goes in the air. I don't want to say what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and it was about six months ago, and they were at uh, an airport as an overboard pilot waiting to be called on. Someone came into the overboard room and saw two bottles of vodka empty in the trash can. So someone called the supervisor, the supervisor made a reasonable suspicion determination, not based upon really anything, it's just he saw the person's eye and someone told him. So the back came in, now when I tell the story, I'm not talking about .04, the back comes in and gives a test, the person blows a .42. So, so the bat's like, you know, like, what the hell? So they unplugged the machine and started again. So there's something wrong with the machine. Put close it back in, 0.41. So 
at this point, the bat she panics and calls 911 because I ain't got it right now. Any one of us is point four one. I'm just like this. I'm dead. So you, you all hear the smells of alcohol. So they take him away and, the, and, the, and they it's on video. The person walks, talks like I'm talking right now, and I'm not blowing a point four one. They take him to the emergency room, check him out. Say, hey, he's just, he's just stinking drunk. So they give another test at a point three seven. What's wrong with the whole process? Between every test, it needs to be what? An air block, right? All they have is three initial tests. That test got thrown out. Now, the only saving grace under, under the, another agency that has big things that go there, he got, he got referred to, medical, to the medical standards, who he, then he was automatically suspended. So the point of what Mike was saying about this stuff, there are processes here for the alcohol testing, out. You have initial, you have an air blank, then you go ahead and have a confirmation, and then you do an accuracy check afterwards. And if you don't have all those three things, you're going to lose tests. And then in your case, let's say it's an FTA person, you just bought this person back. You can't get rid of them. Because you got no final result. And that's why the, that's why breath testing is so, because these type of things don't happen often because we very rarely we do alcohol tests, and very rarely do we have ones that go to like this. So it becomes a difficult situation, but I, I was bringing this up because the way Mike's question was, they want to keep on testing. You know, this person, you could test him for the next two days, probably, and he still would have got With the initial example, too, that Mike presented, where the, in the secondary testing, the person's BAC has gone up, I'm a little skeptical of that because the assumption here is that in the first test, there was a screening test, a 15-minute wait, and a confirmation test. And it was if it was if that was going up, which it almost definitely was, if the third test is up, then don't give them a test. You know, if it's going up, send them home. Uh, don't use them later because they're they're imminently on their way to 0.04 if sure. they are if you see them going up. Sure. Um, it's very unusual that you would go down and then up. And it's very unusual also for someone to do that type of testing yes. to, until the person comes down under 0.02. We we very rarely see that. Most people just say go home tonight, come back tomorrow. <laughs> That's it. I mean, but the question was asked, and they do do this, and so it was a legitimate question. Thank you. Sure. And I asked, and I'm sitting here asking Mark, okay, so if, if they're doing this scenario and they get down to the level where it's acceptable, are you seriously going to put that person back to work at that point in the safety sensitive position mm -hmm. when you get the result that you're achieving? Yes. That's what these people would. Yeah. I, I've, I've, seen, I've seen that once where someone got it down. After, after five tests, they got it down to under 0.02 and they put the person back on. And, and you know what, Mike, what happens then? They get back into the water of the transit vehicle and go by 7 11 get a 40 ounce. Oh, I do this every day. Oh, they were afraid of losing their buzz at that point in time. So, <laughs> so with the example that you just used, and I know this is probably left to center what we really discuss here. Uh -huh. um, you know, the big things that work in the air. Yeah. We're sending a lot of those overseas. That's here true. in America, to wrench on those um, aircraft, you're the drug you, you said that I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're the... To be clear, we are talking about Zeppelins, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's... But to wrench on those overseas, you're not under the same... You know what I mean? And so, you know, those things are being worked on and then sent back over here. So right. I don't know how that can be fixed, but that, well, that yes. is an issue. 
that's a great question. When it comes to drug testing, the FAA actually has a rule out to try to submit comments about testing foreign country pilots and mechanics because of that issue. But it's not going to go anywhere. It's just, it's just too many countries and too many different things you have to deal with. They tried to do this in the early 90s and it got a slow death in this war. Died a slow death also. Or just call me. I, just call me and I just told you the answer. <laughs> This is an FTA question. Um, so I'm currently dealing with a uh, refusal to test situation, but I did have a question about, so this particular employee is challenging his, uh, that he performs safety sensitive functions. So I just want some feedback if anyone else has anyone else with this uh, job description. This is some an ITS, Intelligent Transportation Systems Technician. He maintains and repairs all of our you know, ITS equipment on the buses. And so he's been in our random pool for years and is now, ch he had a refusal and is now challenging this. Does this sound like a government employee to you? So, we, and this was fairly common in the early 90s when FTA's regulation came out, you know, mid 90s, I guess, um, that there would be, that essentially, anyone touching the vehicle would be covered. And I want to say September of 96, maybe, um, FTA legal determined that fare box technicians were not covered under 655. For the most part, I would put ITS equipment on the vehicle into that category, unless you can determine that there's some way that the that it would affect public safety, cause the bus to malfunction operation. Yeah, if it would cause the brakes to either fail or to actuate, cause the wheel to change, something like that. But you know, it's you have a, a human in there who's trying to operate the vehicle, at least for the future, the near future. Um, who's safe to sense it? That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs>
that's tied to rank specifically, but it's not the drug and alcohol at 655 really. If you would like an FTA audit, I know someone who can set that up for you. I'm not threatening. It's, it's very, it's very, the audits are very, very helpful. Raise your hand if you have an audit. And I think Mark even weighed in on it a little bit. 
Um, we have, we're a TPA, and we have a lot of our utility contractors who um, are pipeline regulated and federal motor carrier regulated. Um, with the change going over, um, with pipeline raising it to the 50%, um, I just wanted some guidance about the alcohol testing, and I know Patrice um, alluded to that earlier as well. Uh, my question is, on the FMCSA side, are you planning to clarify um, 382305N um, on random testing? Because it does say in there, um, subject to the controlled testing, um, controlled substance and, alcohol, and or alcohol of the mode that regulates more than 50%. So that it wasn't, it's not clearly stated that unless they don't do alcohol, you still have to do alcohol if you put them in a pipeline pool. <laughs> so. Yes, and that is for employees that perform both duties, right? Right. So, uh, yeah, they're subject to that uh, 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 random testing. What I can tell you, and, and this is something from probably from pipeline to do the pick because they're asking for 50%, right? For our side, you're fine, but you know, uh, I don't know. With uh, you might not be compliant with pipelines. See, the, what you're asking the question is: motor carrier is saying whatever the highest rate is. Well, pipelines has no alcohol testing, so it's assumed that if you have motor carrier people, they're going to be alcohol testing. So that that regulation doesn't need to get changed because it's high. There's only a drug testing pool for for pipelines. Right, but three eight five. Testing of the mode pipeline is drugs pretty much only, right? 
So you're checking that box, you're, you're meeting that. So as there is no alcohol requirement for pipelines, so the default will go to motor carrier at the, at the, other, at the other percentage that they're testing under. So you're meeting the drug only, am I not reading that right? Yeah, so you're meeting the drug, and so there's an and or at the agency that they're doing 50% of their work, which is pipeline, correct? So pipeline does not have an alcohol requirement. So that is like null and void. You can't give, you can't test it for something that there is no coverage for. So then you would default go to motor carrier in that respect. They would pick up the pick up the remainder of that. Applying the fifty percent of the duties. Applying the fifty percent. No, no, no. But I'm, I'm saying the drop. Yeah. So if you 
come out call list, and that employee is on the list with the, with the motor carrier drivers because he has a CDL2. Uh, but his drug portion comes out of FEMSA, which is going to be matched or better on the motor carrier side. But you would have you would have two or three separate pools, would you mind? Three, it'd be three separate pools. Right, it could be. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, no, no. So all the alcohol, all your CDL drivers are basically on an alcohol list, that one yes. list. And you're taking ten percent of those from action. Mm -hmm. And then the other so your drugs are kind of separate. Right. So, so you have to, you have to put all your motor carrier guys at fifty percent defensive well, the list or something. Well you could. I mean the thing with it is you could have a fifty percent pool pipeline only. A 25% pool with uh, motor carriers only, and a 10% pool for all CDL drivers. Right, right. But all, once again, all the randomness has to be met. You know, how it's being drawn, how it's selected, all the rest of that stuff. And remember that 25% is the minimum required testing you can test to kind of yeah. We always go over a little bit, but yeah. Well, my question is um, FTA is regarding thresholds. Um, and I was just curious as to if you've had any a lot of experience or anyone in the audience with, we have a lot of incident, well not a lot, but seems to be more than usual, where mirrors will hit um, passing, and believe it or not, you'll have a person on the, on the bus that says they're injured. Uh, yes, and transport it immediately from the scene, and so, you know, we have no way of knowing if our person crossed over the line or what. So we do the post that. So wait a minute, I back that up. How do you not know if your person contributed to the, the well, motor and the net person? So I'm trying to okay. just break it down. So if you have the person that said, oh, I'm hurt, I hurt my leg when the mirror fell off. We ran to believe the mirror came off on the side, <coughs> the person inside the bus, and then they're just if early it's just them being transported is not in and of itself a threshold checkbox. You have to look at the picture holistically. If you go, if that supervisor's out there is asking questions and they find out that the mirror was here, that person was sitting clearly way in the back of the bus, but I'm hurt. Well, I just felt like I'm hurt. Okay, they're upset, <laughs> but you know that that driver had no dealings with no that did not contribute with that you would not call that an FTA test. That would be an over test. When we come out and audit and say, okay, you're saying everything is FTA. At this point, part of one of the things we would recommend is you need to fill, like, fill that gap with your policy and saying, how would you guys do that? And then some refresher training for your supervisors that are making these determinations because if you're, and some things are clear, some things aren't clear, but if you have a perfect scenario that's like front of the bus, this, the person's way in the back, Unless it was so jarring that that person, you know, but these are all things, factors you need to take into consideration. I would just add that you should empower your supervisors to call bullshit bullshit. We see this all the time. And your supervisors know that your bus drivers are, you may have heard me say this yesterday, generally, though they may drive you crazy, very, very good drivers. You guys spend a lot of time and money training them. They are excellent drivers. People, regular people like me, are terrible drivers. <laughs> so yeah, maybe if, if your supervisor talks to the people on the bus and they say, you know, the bus driver swerved over the other lane, that's why it happened. Then yeah, maybe send them send them for a test. Don't discount the driver. But if it's happening a lot, probably it's just people. It's you know bad other drivers and it's people who want to get a check from you. Yeah. So tell them to to stand up straight, document what they see, and then not do a test. 
All right, I think we've reached the limit. Can we give a hand to the... Um, Now, they did cover tons of information during that session. That might be one of those where you might have to go back and listen to it a couple of times to get all of the information that was covered. You have four experts there that are able to answer questions, and a lot of questions came in from the audience. Great information overall. Yes, you might be hearing some splashing sound in the background. Yes, we are in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I am taking this opportunity to do this recap right now directly from the beach. So those are the splashes. Enjoying the second to last day here during the conference. Um, we'll be heading back home here shortly. But just wanted to take the moment to say thank you for listening to the podcast. I truly appreciate the amount of listeners that we've had over the last few weeks. If you're interested in being, being a little bit more involved with the podcast, you can actually come to our website at safetyfm.com. You can visit us at Facebook at Safety FM or go to Twitter at Safety FM. Now, I'm not sure which actual podcast system you're listening to us on, but if you do like the show, please go ahead and subscribe to our little show here, and please feel free on giving us a review. Based on whatever information you give us, we know exactly what to do, how to move forward with the podcast. Hopefully, you are enjoying it. Till next time, I've been Jay Allen, your safety manager and host. Please be safe. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. So do you feel like you're missing out on what everyone is starting to do now, that live streaming thing, and you don't know where to start or what to do? I have the resource and the information to provide to you in regards on how you can stream onto 40 social media platforms all at one time. Yes, that's 44-0 social media platforms all at one time. All you'll need to do is go to safetyfm.com forward slash one. That's safetyfm.com forward slash one. That's O-N-E. So just in case. And you'll be able to start live streaming just like you're hearing people starting to do right now up to 40 social media platforms.